Blog Talk Radio. And I want to apologize to my listeners. Um, this, I hate when this happens. I'd come up earlier and made sure the computer was up and running and ready to go. And um, somebody shut it off in the meantime. So I had to restart it, and I totally missed the amount of time, misjudged the amount of time it was going to take me to get the computer up because I didn't think I was going to have to do it. So I'm running a little late tonight, and I apologize for that. And um, I'm hesitating here because until I got up, I couldn't actually call our guest and she hasn't picked up yet so uh, while we're waiting for um, that and hopefully hopefully uh, we'll get Linda here in just a minute but in the meantime why don't I just go ahead and run through the uh, up the housekeeping stuff, and then we'll try again and see if we can get Linda here. Um, first off, uh, I always want to start with our little housekeeping sign so everybody knows what we're doing. And I want to make sure... Oh, that's not good. Come on, stop. Okay, it sounds like we had a lot of dishes tonight. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that everybody knows that they can call in. Our number is 714-242-5253. That's 714-242-5253 or toll-free one eight seven seven six three three nine three eight nine. That's one eight seven seven six three three nine three eight nine. And um, the next upcoming show, assuming we get everything going right here, uh, is going to uh, be the one that we have a scheduled date for is going to be episode 36. It's going to be talking to Susan Thurlow about Dr. George Tan. It's 1 p.m. Central Time, 12 p.m. Nice program at Laura Palooza and I think maybe we're going to try and get 
sounds like we're at least getting dialing this time. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Linda. I'm sorry. I was late calling you, and then the last number you gave me, it just wouldn't go through. So I backed up and gave the first tried the first number you gave me. So I hope this is all right. Yeah, this is perfect. Okay, good. Um, well, hold on just one second. Now I've got you. I was in the middle of housekeeping stuff. Okay, so, sure. While I was dialing. So sure. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, so that'll be the next scheduled program. Now, somewhere in between these two programs, there's a, we're going to actually be doing a program where I'm going to be talking about uh, what's going on in DeSmet, and probably I'm going to try and script, uh, go ahead and fit one in next month about uh, what's going on in Pepin and my trip there. But um, I, I don't have firm dates for those, and it kind of depends on how uh, certain things happen and break this month. but So watch the the page for those to come up, and um, that should so probably be coming up fairly soon. Uh, and I think with no further ado from that, we will go ahead and end the housekeeping. And go ahead and bring Linda back on. Welcome, Linda. I'm sorry we had some technical problems there. Oh, I'm so glad to be with you tonight. So why don't we start out by you just telling uh, audience a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I live in southwest Wisconsin, um, a small town called Boscobel, and We've been here about 10 years. Um, I'm originally from upstate New York, and I've been quilting for about as long as I can remember. Um, I travel all over the country teaching quilting to quilt guilds and shops um, and conferences. And um, several years ago, I combined my love of quilting with my love of Laura Ingalls Wilder, and I took on a project um, that resulted in a book called Quilting with Laura. And those are patterns that were inspired by Laura and her Little House on the Prairie series of books. And because of that, um, I ended up becoming involved in Laura Palooza, which is how you and I met. And mm -hmm. I gave a talk there this summer about what quilt making was like during Laura's lifetime and what kind of quilts she probably made. Um, some of them we know. Some of them uh, are, are assumptions that we're making based on what quilts were like during that time period. And so I was able to share all that with the folks that were at Laura Palooza in Mankato this summer. And I have to say you did just an amazing job. Uh, I, I just was really impressed by your program. And, oh, thank uh, you. So I was very glad that you, you were willing to come on the podcast. I know it's going to be a little bit more difficult because we won't have examples to hold up, but I think we can get some good information across anyway. Yeah, we'll give it a shot. <laughs> yeah. So how did you get interested in quilts in the first place? 
Well, I've been sewing since I was little. Um, my mom did all kinds of needlework, um, crocheting and knitting and embroidery and sewing, and she taught me how to sew when I was six years old. But quilting wasn't ever really part of our stitching heritage. It wasn't until I was a teenager that I remember seeing my first quilts. And I was so intrigued with the idea that you could take pieces of fabric that were scraps and sew them into something and make something useful out of them. And the more I started researching it and seeing quilts, the more intrigued I became. And it just ended up taking over my whole life. You know how that is when you find something that really intrigues you. Definitely. So how did you follow up on that? If your mom wasn't a quilter, what did you do to learn about quilts? Well, when we were first married, I used to spend a lot of time in the local library during my lunch hours. Oh, and that's great when answer. I, I know, you like that? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Speaking to a librarian, I thought you would appreciate that. Mm-hmm. But that's when I started um that's when I found that there was a history behind quilts and that there were stories behind the patterns and that um, there was a heritage that went with quilting. And that was just so fascinating to me. And it was a few years before the bicentennial. And so when that energy of the bicentennial started to strike everyone, I thought, well, that's what I want to do. I want to learn how to quilt. And this is a perfect time to do it. And I found that there were other people that also wanted to learn how to quilt. And because I tend to like to tell people what to do, I thought, well, teaching would be a good thing. (laughs) And so I actually put an ad in the local penny saver and said, I would teach classes in my house. And then I just waited to see what would happen. And I started getting some phone calls and I got a group of six people that came to that first class and we did a series of six classes and on class number six they said well you better plan something for next week because we're coming back and it just (laughs) snowballed from there so um you know with an ever-growing group of students um word of mouth spread and so other people wanted me to teach Um, I also talked our local historical society into letting me mount a quilt show for the Bicentennial. And people in the community, when they heard about it, started telling me about quilts they had in their family. And it just blossomed into this wonderful networking of seeing people and finding out about their quilts and the history behind the quilts. And it just grew from there. Now... We've been talking so far about quilt making, but from a historical viewpoint, uh, there's a bigger emphasis on quilt collecting. Are quilt makers and quilt collectors usually the same people? That's an interesting question. Sometimes they are, but not always. I know several people that are quilt collectors who don't actually make quilts but they're interested in quilts because of the history behind them, um, because of the women's studies kind of of field that goes along with quilt making. So quilt collectors aren't always quilt makers, uh, but sometimes they are. Hmm. So this is a very 
chilly night, at least down here in Iowa. In fact, tonight was the first uh, time this fall we turned on the furnace. So that's making me think about a nice, warm, cozy quilt. What were some of the ways um, that, and some of the purposes that quilts were used for in the 19th century when, when Laura was writing about? Well, quilts were used for a lot more than just bedding. And maybe I should back up a little bit and give kind of an overview for some of your listeners that might not be quilters themselves. Oh, Um, that would be fine. A quilt is actually a textile sandwich, if you want to think of it that way, that's made up of layers. The top layer of the quilt is the layer that has the pattern design to it, and that can either be accomplished by appliquing, which is where you cut a design out of fabric and apply or stitch it to a background fabric, Um, or it can be pieced, and that's where you cut out geometric shapes and sew them together to make a new piece of cloth. That forms the quilt top, and that's, as I said, where the pattern is. The middle layer is the batting, and that's what provides the thickness and the warmth, and then the back side is just called the backing. And those three layers are then either stitched or tied together, and that's what gives the warmth. And, and most I, often- I, I just ahead. want to say that I, I just interrupting to say that I'm a big believer in quilt tying because it's just so disheartening to me, having just sewn the entire top, to go back and sew over the same material again. <laughs> purposes you know they both serve a purpose and they're both useful in their own way (laughs) there are are a lot of people who who like the quilting part and i think it's very lovely but personally it's just too much for me i just get overwhelmed (laughs) i'd rather tie the sucker when i get that far and consider it good and then you can be warm faster (laughs) yes well other you had asked what other things quilting was used for it was also used for clothing Um, they would make quilted petticoats for example to wear underneath their outer garments to provide extra warmth particularly in the winters Um, they used them um, for room dividers they would hang quilts from ropes if they needed to divide a room into smaller sections or to give privacy, um, particularly when they had like one-room cabins or saddies and there weren't um, separate rooms. This would be a way that they could get some privacy. Uh, they would use my great aunt, my great aunt and uncle actually did that in one of the houses they rented. There's some pictures of them, and they used the quilts. Well, actually, they used sheets, but close enough to, to make the walls of the house. It's it's kind of interesting seeing it. It really it works quite well. Um, mm-hmm. They also use them to cover windows or doorways to keep the drafts out. Um, and and we did that in our first home because it was an old farmhouse and it was kind of drafty. The insulation wasn't that great. So we had a lot of things covered up with quilts just to try to keep warmer. And then when they were moving, they would often use quilts to package, to wrap up their valuables. And Laura actually talks at one point about Pa's fiddle being wrapped in a quilt when they were traveling. Um, so they used them for a lot of things other than just bed coverings. So how common was quilting in the late 19th century? Would it just be assumed that everybody was making quilts, or did some people quilt and other people do you know, other, uh, other handiwork? 
Good question. Um, by the 1870s, 1880s, that time period, women were, um, well, it was approved, if you will, for women to do handiwork and fancy work is what they would call it. And so um, a lot of women did do stitching. The just like today, the wealthier you are, the less of that kind of thing you have to do yourself. But you might pay somebody else to do it for you. Um, they couldn't go out to the store and buy blankets, so having quilts somehow was was a part of the lifestyle. So, so quilts were very common um, in the 19th century. They were most often made by the people who actually were using them. But occasionally wealthier people would have someone else either in their household or they would hire out and have their quilts made for them. So how many quilts would a typical pioneer family have in the last part of the the 19th century where we're talking with the Laura time? Well, I think that would depend a lot on the size of the family um, as far as how many quilts they would need. There's an old wives' tale that a young girl was expected to have completed 12 quilt tops before she became engaged, and this was to give her a chance to perfect her sewing skills as well as to give her enough quilts to start her household with. Um, During that time period, a warm home in the winter might only be 55 degrees, so they really needed a lot of quilts just as a matter of survival. Um, as, As part of that... Old Wives' Tale, the the making of the quilt top wasn't the expensive part of the process. The expense came when you had to then buy the batting and the large pieces of fabric for the backing. So that didn't get done until after the engagement happened. And at that point, um, the girl was expected to start her 13th of her baker's dozen of quilts, and that was called her bridal quilt. And in that, she would show off her fancy sewing skills, Um, and that would help to show that she was indeed ready to start her own household, because sewing was a huge part of running a household. You had to have those kind of skills in order to provide the family with all the stitched items that they would need, the clothing, the linens, um, anything cloth had to be sewn by hand. Now, there's no real proof that that was an actual practice that every girl made 12 quilt tops before she became engaged. Um, I think that's kind of a terrifying idea myself. I don't know <laughs> that I would have ever gotten married if I had to have done that when I was a teenager. Um, but uh, it's hard to tell how many quilts people really had because so many of them were made to be used and they were used saw a lot of hard use and were worn out. So a lot of the antique quilts, the ones that we are seeing today, are the ones that were saved for best and Mm -hmm. didn't get used that often. So I think what we're seeing of old quilts are just a tiny fraction of the number of quilts that were actually out there at the time. That's like clothing. And with historic clothing, what you see are a lot of wedding gowns and a lot of sort of best outfits and not too much work clothes because you would wear them out and then throw them away. Exactly. And and quilts certainly do. One of the downfalls of quilts in in use, at least in my experience, has been that the fabrics don't all have the same... 
wearing ability. Mm-hmm. So if you actually use them on your bed, at least, you know, some people fall into bed and they do not move at all. That's not me. I, I'm a cover churner, <laughs> and my quilts tend to develop holes. <laughs> and then sometimes you can go back and fix them and put in other pieces, but sometimes it just gets to be the point where it's a lost cause. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that quilt historians just absolutely love is when they are – Um, studying an old quilt to determine when it was made and they discover that there's another quilt inside of the quilt. The the old quilts were used sometimes for the batting and were covered over with a new quilt. And so that's like this hidden treasure that they find, which is is great fun. It's kind of rare, but it's fun when it does happen. Well, I'll tell you my quilt story now before we go in. The 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 my big quilt that I made for a four H project was after my great grandmother died, we went through uh her clothes and we cut quilt squares out of that and the different dresses that I remembered her wearing and sewed that together as a quilt, which I then tied because, as I say, I'm a tire. But Oh, what uh, a wonderful keepsake though of, yes. of her clothing. Yeah. Okay. Well that's enough about me in modern times because we're going to go back (laughs) and and talk a little bit about sort of the trends in the 19th century. People kind of have this this bad notion in mind of everything that happened in the past kind of happened in one big ball of oldie timey wimey stuff. And (laughs) that isn't really how it was at all. And guess what? People might have been well, whatever they say, 12 times poorer in the in the 19th century than we are now, but they had fashion trends, and they would follow them as best as they were able. So there were actually trends in quilts, right? Absolutely. And quilt historians can actually tell when a quilt was made by studying the fabrics that were used for the quilt, Um, Fabric from different time periods had different colors because different dyes or dye processes were popular. Um, They had different styles of designs imprinted on the cloth. Um, There were different construction techniques that were in fashion at different time periods. So by studying all of those things, they can determine when a quilt was made. I would guess that something like 95% of the antique quilts that are out there were not signed and dated. So the only way that we can tell when they were made is doing this detective work of studying the fabrics and the techniques that were used to which make is quilts. A, which is a good reminder to everybody, if you are doing handiworks now, sign and date your stuff so people in 100 years will know who made them and when. I always, Absolutely. I always do that on mine. I at least put my initials and then the year. So but just as part of the pattern in the corner, just so people would know when and where this thing came from. Absolutely. And to take that one step farther, one thing that um, my husband's grandmother started doing, because she ended up inheriting a lot of quilt tops from her ancestors and didn't know when they were made. So she, when she got into quilt making, she started signing the backs of the quilt tops So even though they hadn't been completed yet into a quilt, that way she knew that when they were handed down, whoever received them would know when they were made and who made them, which has been a wonderful gift. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that um, I encourage people to do as well. Don't wait for it to be a finished quilt to sign it. 
Well, that's true. I mean, there's a lot of quilt tops floating around out in the world, too. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so let's go back um, to the years that were covered in Laura Ingalls Wilder's books and kind of just broadly go decade, decade by decade. What are the kinds of things would we see in quilts from the 1860s? Okay, um, in the 1860s, that was the time when we were in the midst of the Civil War, which really affected um, fabrics and what they looked like. The cotton manufact the cotton growers in the South could not get cotton to the factories in the North, so the textile factories um, that were running were no longer making cotton or making cotton fabric. They were uh, making fabric for wartime use. So. Calico was very hard to come by. Um, the dyes that we had been getting from Europe prior to that were no longer available because of blockades. So all of the fabric that was being made was being dyed with natural dyes, like walnut and butternut, um, that kind of thing. So everything was very earth tone as far as the fabric. And because fabric was hard to come by, people really resorted to a lot of patchwork that used scraps and remnants. So a lot of pieced quilts, um, the fancier applique quilts that had been popular before the war weren't popular during the Civil War because there wasn't the resources to make them. Um, after the war ended and we started getting the dyes coming back into the country, the fabrics started to get brighter and a lot more vibrant. Um, and the piecing the construction, the patterns of the quilt started to get a little more complicated because people could afford to start buying fabric now to be used for quilts instead of just using leftovers. And another thing that happened as we went into the 1870s was the World Exhibition in Philadelphia that celebrated the centennial of our country. Mm -hmm. um, it was a World's Fair of sorts, and over 10 million people went to see the things at the fair, and so they saw fabrics and clothing and needlework that were in style all over the world, and that really affected the style of quilts being made at the time. And one of the things that became really popular in the mid-1870s because of the exposition was crazy quilting, where people would take fancy bits of silks and velvets and satins and embroider them together with very fancy embroidery stitches because they had seen that type of needlework in the Japanese exhibit at the exhibition. And so you'll find during the 1870s a lot of crazy quilts that weren't really made as bed quilts to sleep under, but they were made as fancy throws to, to throw over the sofa or to throw over the piano, um, things that were in the parlor, the room that was saved for Sundays, for company, for um, not for hard use. So you'll see a lot of crazy quilts from that time period. Yeah, a lot of, of stuff came out of that 1876 um, Centennial Exposition. There was a lot of things that showed up for the first time there. So it's interesting, quilts were affected by it too. Um, just as a quick question, because mm -hmm. I'm 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 okay in general on my clothing history, but I'm definitely not an expert. Now, when was it that the chemical dyes came in? Was that before uh, the Civil War, or it was, was it? Yeah, okay. it was actually the one of the first chemical dyes was 1856, 
and it was in Germany by a young man named William Perkins, who at 18 years of age was trying to find um, a way to make a synthetic quinine that could be used to treat malaria, um, because that was a really big health problem in the day. And he was trying to come up with an artificial quinine. And it I've not read how he actually discovered that what he made was a color fast dye, but I'm thinking he spilled it on his clothing and his mother couldn't wash it out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because what he developed was a color fast purple, which ended up becoming called Perkins Purple, named after him. And it was the start of chemical dyes in Germany, and they quickly became the world leader in the manufacture of dyes. And textile. Uh, the textile industry at that time is on a par with um, what the auto industry was 20 years ago in America as being the prime mover of the economy or what mm -hmm. the computer industry is now. If you led, if you had a, a really strong textile industry, you really controlled um, the economy of your country. So Germany was really very protective of their dye industry. And whenever there was a war, there was a blockade against the dyes. And there are a lot of stories during World War One of espionage to try to find out what the dye formulas were and, and get them into this country because people, um, well, they, they said that America was in a dye famine, which I think is just such an interesting terminology because mm -hmm. they had no access to the dyes. So, um, yeah, chemical dyes, which gave really bright, vibrant colors, did happen before the Civil War. And then we were without them during the war. And after the war, they started coming back again. So you started to see a resurgence of bright colors. Okay. Okay. Well, so I interrupted the, the kind of train of history there. So that gets us back to, I think we're up to the 1880s then. Okay. In the 1880s, um, you started to see a lot of quilts that were made of blocks that had outline embroidery on them. They were made out of what were called penny squares. People could buy pre-stamped designs on squares of cloth for a penny, and then they embroidered the lines on the cloth. And so they, they got away from the fancy, crazy quilting of the 1870s where everything was filled in, and they just did the outlines instead. And so you saw a lot of things like that, or a lot of charm quilts where people would make a patchwork quilt and use as many different kinds of fabric as they could, um, only using one piece of a particular fabric. So one quilt might have a thousand different fabrics in it, for example, and people would trade with each other so that they didn't have to repeat a fabric in a quilt. So you saw a lot of novelty kinds of quilts in the 1880s. Um, by the 1890s, they were again into the novelty quilts, but it took a little bit different turn. Um, things like when men bought boxes of cigars or boxes of cigarettes, they came with silk or flannel cloth patches in them that had flags of the world or um, famous people of the day, and they would save them, kind of like the idea of baseball cards now, mm -hmm. but they were fabric swatches, and women would make quilts out of these. Um, so yeah. there were novelty quilts in the, the late 1800s. You sort of see that 
uh, as a resurgent, I've seen several quilts that were made out of 4-H ribbons that were, you know, a similar design. Yep, the same kind of idea of of using the quilt format as a way to showcase these um, memorabilia. Um, By the early 1900s, you started to see quilt kits become available where there were people that would design a quilt pattern and then package up a kit that had all the fabrics you needed in the kit to make the quilt. And you could buy the kits through mail order sources. Um, And so that became popular in the 1910s, 1920s. By the 1930s, when the Depression hit, it was hard for people to buy fabric. Um, That became kind of a luxury. But what they were doing was um, saving the fabric that uh, feed came in, like chicken feed and and, um, horse chow and, you know, all the kinds of things you use to feed animals. That came in cloth sacks um, long before we we didn't have paper bags to put it in at mm-hmm. that time. They were cloth. And so the sack manufacturers um, took it upon themselves to start printing the fabric that all these things were in because they knew it could be a selling tool. And women would send their husbands to the store and say, okay, now I want three five-pound sacks of this print, and I want four ten-pound sacks of this print. And they would save the sacks and use those sacks to make clothing or make quilts, and that way they didn't feel like they were spending extra money on fabric. It seemed like the fabric was a, a free thing at that point. Yeah, my mom says when she was growing up, she still had feed sack underwear. Yes, yes. I actually found a pattern book um, for clothing patterns that instead of giving yardage, it gives how many 5-pound sacks you would need or how many 10-pound sacks you would need or how many 20-pound sacks you would need in order to make the particular garment, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, During the 30s also, that was a time period when newspapers started to print quilting columns in the paper, and they would give a new pattern every week. And that became a real marketing tool for the newspaper because people would subscribe just so they could get those quilt patterns. Yeah, I've seen a collection of those from the Kansas City Star. Exactly. But some very interesting ones. They had one uh, that was 4-H that I, I always meant to make. And um, then they had a, a swastika one, which back then meant good luck. And right. it's all sorts of interesting different designs. Yep. Some of them were in series. They might have a nursery rhyme series, and each week there would be a different pattern that had to do with a nursery rhyme. Or they might have... Uh, flower state flowers and you'd get a different one each time and interestingly enough you could not send to the newspaper to get the pattern the only way you could get it was when it was published in the newspaper and so that's that really helped to increase newspaper subscriptions for the um, publishers they should bear that in mind when they're giving away everything on the internet that I might know. be a model <laughs> Well, one of the things that happened in the 30s that was really big in the quilt-making world was in 1933, Sears and Roebuck decided to have a quilt contest that they announced in January in their catalog um, that would be held, the contest would be held in Chicago, and it was... um, 
it was something where they were going to offer $7,500 in prize money, which during the Depression was a huge amount of money. The grand prize was $1,000, and the contest was in conjunction with the Century of Progress Chicago World's Fair. Mm-hmm. The deadline for the contest was in May, so it was only a five-month period that people had to make these quilts. They had over 24,000 entries, and that, to this day, remains the biggest response to a quilt contest, um, that so many people could make quilts in that short a time is really quite astonishing. Um, And they had quilt exhibits in local stores, and that helped to sell patterns and quilt supplies and fabrics. So Sears used it as a way to market some of the products they sold, but it really helped to spur on people to make quilts. Okay. So that about brings us up to the 1940s, which are mostly the war years again. Yep, and during that time period, it's not unlike what's happening today where women would get together and make lap quilts for wounded soldiers. And um, in that time period, they were distributed by the Red Cross. And so there was a lot of that kind of thing. Not many of those quilts seem to be around now, again, because I think they saw a lot of hard use and so have disintegrated over time. Um, But by the time the 1950s came and the war was over, manufacturing had really started to get back on its feet in America, and so people really wanted to buy things ready-made rather than make things. It it almost became um, a stigma if you made a quilt that showed that you were poor, and if if you were... um, you know, well-to-do, you could buy a ready-made blanket. So during the 50s, there was a real decline in quilt making. Um, You didn't see a lot of quilts uh, that were being made during that time period, but by the time the 70s hit and the bicentennial um, was coming up, that really spurred people on to um, make use of materials and do a lot of recycling and and quilting just blossomed from there and it hasn't stopped. Yeah, I I don't think people today if they weren't alive during the bicentennial and I was was very young, but it really did affect for years on either side crafts people did and choices in furniture and a whole bunch of things. It really was a very um dramatic uh, event in in the the country's uh, sort of pop culture, but it, it's hard to for, to explain how many different things that it did impact. But it really it, did, and I and I think the the bicentennial combining with kind of that back to nature sort of attitude that that mm-hmm. came about in the sixties and seventies of you know getting back to the earth and and growing your own vegetables and canning and freezing your own food and um you know making as much as you could yourself that that whole um the series of books that came out the foxfire books that told mm-hmm. how to do all those old fashioned kinds of things was really a popular thing and affected a lot of people and that that is still going on people um there are people that are still 
you know, doing that and and making their living doing that kind of thing, and and I'm glad for it because it means quilting is alive and well. Mm-hmm. Well, let's kind of swing back a little bit more to the quilting focus then. So we we talked kind of about the trends in quilting and back to, as I mentioned, people thinking about the past as a big ball of oldie-timey, timey-wimey stuff <laughs> uh, and think that people always did things the way they did them today. When did named patterns really come in? That didn't really start until the late 1880s um, when mail-order catalogs started to become all the rage. In 1889 was the first mail-order catalog that sold quilting patterns, and that came out of St. Louis. It was the Ladies' Art Company, and they offered over 300 patterns in their first catalog. And at that time, many of them were just named things like mosaic number one, mosaic number two, mosaic number three. Mm -hmm. But, of course, they didn't want to do that for all 300, so they started making up names to go with the patterns. Um, Prior to that, people didn't really so much name patterns. Um, but but when they started to try to market them in this mail-order catalog culture that developed, that's when patterns started to have names. And the names would change according to what part of the country you were from um, because different publications would name them different things to give their own imprint on the patterns. So the, the names weren't, like, registered or strictly held to. So, I mean, it wouldn't be like you'd find one pattern called the Texas Star, and that would be the only pattern that was called the Texas Star. Correct. They were not. Um, there was no national registry, if you will, for quilt names. Sometimes you would have a particular pattern that it would be named one thing if the pieces in the puzzle were colored one way, and it would have a different name if they were colored a different way. It would still be the same geometric pieces sewn in the same fashion, but the optical illusion would change according to how it was colored, and the name would then change too. And so... Quilt naming quilt patterns has almost become like naming your child. Um, people, people are still making up new names for patterns, um, and there's there's no rules on how the names come about. Um, so you can see one particular pattern, but it will have a lot of different names associated with it. So that must make it hard to track the history of a particular pattern. It can. It really can. Um, but by the same token, it it does give you a lot of flexibility when you are trying to find the name of something um, because there are a lot of different sources that you can look at to see if you can find the pattern. So um, let's talk a little bit uh, more in depth about a particular pattern that Laura is strongly connected with. Um, In fact, for as and I think it was partly because of this naming convention coming later. Although Laura talks about quilting a lot, she doesn't talk about named quilts so much. But one that she does talk about is the nine-patch quilt pattern. So let's just talk about that a little bit. Okay. Um, the nine-patch pattern, we tend to think of it, because we think of patterns today by name, when people read her talking about nine-patch patterns, they think of the patterns that are made up of three squares across and three rows down, so it's fragmented into nine segments, much like a tic-tac-toe board would be. Mm -hmm. 
But, um, <clears throat> excuse me, during the time Laura was making quilts, Nine Patch referred more to a category of quilt patterns, not a specific design. <clears throat> and so the patterns that she was probably making were ones that could be divided into nine segments, but those segments could be further subdivided if she wanted to. So you could, like, um, just as a simple in- instance, there would be a pattern of nine blocks, but every other one might be in four squares itself. Well, some of the squares in the tic-tac-toe board might be subdivided into triangles, for example, mm-hmm. so that the particular block might be made up of squares and triangles, but the general um, roadmap that it was laid out in was in a three-by-three three kind of layout. So it might have been... Um, a nine-patch block, it might have been a maple leaf block, it might have been a hole-in-the-barn door or a shoe fly. And these are all names that became attached um, in the 1900s rather than in the 1880s when she was quilting, but they all fall into the nine-patch category. And so when when Laura is talking about uh, sewing um a quilt in it, and um, Mary's doing, and I don't remember what the, the when she was doing on, but it was uh, more, di- it sounded like it was more difficult than a simple nine patch. Laura might have been doing something equally hard. It was just in the nine patch category, and that's what she, how she would have referred to it. Yes, yeah. There are only three patterns that Laura mentions by name in her books. One of them is the nine patch, and that is one that that she does talk about Mary doing. And I suspect that when Mary did them, they were just the squares because she was doing them by feel, and it would be much easier to sew squares together um, because all those edges would be on the straight grain. They wouldn't be stretchy at all. Um, But Laura does talk about being very proud of working on a bear's paw block, and that has a lot of bias, stretchy edges, and it was a little more difficult to do. And then the the third pattern she mentions by name is the dove in the window, which is the pattern that she made for her bridal quilt. And by the time she was doing that, that was more approaching the time when patterns were illustrated in ladies' magazines. So she may have seen that in a magazine somewhere, and that's where she got the pattern from. Well, let's talk about that a little bit then, because there's actually been um, some question on exactly what pattern Laura meant by Doves at the Window. There was a pattern that was found in Laura's possessions after she died that was called Doves at the Window, but it wasn't a completed quilt. It was just a pattern that she mm-hmm. might that she had gotten somewhere. So some people think that one, uh, which Mansfield reproduced and sold for years, was the one she used. There is also, um, that's an alternative way, if you change the block a little on the bear's paw, which, which she mentions, right? Mm-hmm. And... Um, so there's been some speculation that it was that kind of alternative since she'd already done the um the bear's paw or of course it could be some uh, you know some third option because the names do can refer to any number of of blocks what right. is your take on that well interestingly enough when um when you sent me the list of questions that you were going to ask um I dug out the notes that I had 
done, the research I had done when I worked on my book, and found that there were three different patterns that had been identified as doves in the window in some of the old quilt books. And one of them that I used was in my book was based on an eight-pointed star, and it looks kind of like birds. Um, and so that's the one that I used in my book. But one of the earlier books that had a diagram of a doves in the window, I was really shocked when I saw it again um, in looking over my notes this last week because it is really, really similar to a block that is framed and on display in the Burr Oak Laura Ingalls Wilder site Um it's, they have a framed block in the Stedman room that is just labeled as a piece of Laura's patchwork. And they show a little bit of the back of it so you can see that it's pieced by hand. And that looks very much like this diagram that oh, really? I found. Uh, yes, of a doves in the window. Um, and it's a really unusual block because it, it can't be divided up in a straight line grid like most of the other quilt patterns that you see. So I'm really um, excited about doing some more research and seeing if I can find out more about that particular block that they have and if they know any more information about it. Um, by the time I contacted them today, they were already closed for the day. Oh. So, But but it, it really looks very similar to um, the pattern that I found from a 1929 book of quilt patterns. Uh, and one that they called doves in the window. That is very interesting. That that is, I think the the first fabric evidence of what she might have meant by that. That is yeah. very interesting. Yeah, I'm real excited about that. Well, you will have to report back on that. I will. I will. Yeah. Okay. So we've got oh, even less time than I thought. We've got about seven minutes left. So why don't we, I want to make sure we get a chance to talk about your book and what's in it and where people can find a copy if they want it. So let's do that now. Okay, I would love to. Um, I call the book Quilting with Laura. It's Patterns Inspired by the Little House on the Prairie series. And it's a book that I published in, or had published rather, in 1999. And the the inspiration for the book came about when I was teaching at a quilt shop and a young mom came into the shop and asked the shopkeeper if she had any patterns that were inspired by The Little House on the Prairie because those were her daughter's favorite books and she really wanted to teach her daughter quilt making and thought that would be a great way to teach her is to have her do some patterns that were associated with Laura Ingalls Wilder. And I thought, well, what a wonderful idea. Um, those were my favorite books when I was growing up, too, and it would be a fun way to learn quilting. And so um, I had written other books <clears throat> at the time, and I approached my publisher with the idea, and he was very excited about it. And so that started the whole project. Um, because the Laura Ingalls Wilder um franchise is such a closely guarded one, I had to go through HarperCollins, the publishers of the books, and the Laura Ingalls Wilder estate to get permission 
to do the book, and they were excited about the prospect and gave me permission to do it. So what it is is a collection of 14 patterns that are inspired by Laura and her stories. Um, I wanted something where um, someone could learn how to piece the way Laura did by hand so that they could learn how to make the pattern pieces and how to cut out the the shapes and how to sew them together. And I have arranged the patterns in order of difficulty. So you could start with a nine patch and then build on to the next block and then the next one and the next one and learn new skills with each block that you do. And I wanted to choose blocks that would allow someone to tell a story with their quilts. So each of the blocks has a little story with it on how the pattern ties in with the adventures that the Ingalls family had when they were moving. So there are things like the log cabin block because they lived in a log cabin house and the schoolhouse block because Laura became a teacher when she was 15. Um, The doves in the window, of course, and the album block because of um, her getting an autograph album when she was a a teenager. Um, So all of these blocks tell a story. And it's something then that um, people can pick and choose whichever story interests them the most and make a quilt of that design. Several of the Laura Ingalls Wilder sites carry the book in their gift shops. You can get it in Burr Oak or Pepin or Walnut Grove or DeSmet or Mansfield. Or people can go to my website, which is www.lindahelpen.com and can order it directly from me, and I'm happy to autograph it for them if they like. Um, so that's that's where they can get uh, get the books. And it's just a charming little collection of old-fashioned type patterns that um, are just very reminiscent of, of old-time quilt making. Okay, so let me just clarify. The the patterns are ones that were already in existence, and you're just, it was only the design of the overall thing and the connections to Laura uh, that that you designed, right? Correct. Okay. Because people sometimes get confused between new and old patterns, so I just yeah. wanted to clarify that. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're quickly running out of time, but was there any other uh, any other kind of point related with Laura and quilts you wanted to talk about? Um, we covered a lot of territory. We did. <laughs> you asked good questions. Oh, I do thank encourage, you. I do encourage people to go back and read the books. They're not just children's books. They're, they're really a fascinating look at um, a lifestyle gone by. And I was really surprised when I reread the books this spring to find out how many times Laura mentioned quilts. There were over 70 times. It was really a big part of her growing up. And and I think people will really enjoy her descriptions of of what life was like. It was a yeah. very different time. Well, I always I always say that the the Laura books are kind of like The Simpsons. Every time you go back, you discover something else because it's <laughs> layer upon layer upon layer. And as you learn a little bit more, you things that were mysterious before suddenly become clear uh, when you go back and read it again. So I, I'm a big proponent in rereading the books. I think you can always find something new in there. Absolutely. And in fact, I just just today I um, had pulled Little House in the Big Woods at work because there's a, a 
another librarian I know who does black powder shooting, and I'm trying to convince him to come on the podcast and talk about making you know the lead bullets and stuff. And I had him read the description from the long rifle, and he was like, well, they got it pretty much right. <laughs> it amazes me, her memory uh, for detail. Uh, you know, for things, because she was in her 60s and 70s when she wrote these books, and and I only hope my memory is half that good when I, you know, get to be that age. It's it's she was really a phenomenal storyteller. She really was. Well, we got about a minute to go since I since they're my favorite thing, and the other topic I was going to ask you about we couldn't cover a minute. Let's just talk about autograph album quits kilt quilts for just a minute because I love them. Okay. So, so during, uh, during the 1840s and 1850s autograph album quilts were were very popular. It was a time before photography um or photography was very young and not everyone had access to it. And so people would sign their names or they would um write little verses on quilt blocks that uh, went into a quilt, and quite often they were made for people that were moving west as a memento to take with them when they were leaving family behind, um, or they were made as a special gift for someone um, for a special occasion. So they're really fascinating to to come upon the autograph quilts and, and see what history you can find out from them. I I just about had my cousin convinced to make me one because I feel like I'd be cheating to make my own because they're supposed to be given to you. Oh, absolutely not. No, no, no. You need to you need to delve in and do it yourself. A lot of people will bring quilt blocks with them. Um, I had a gal at Laura Palooza this summer with some patches of fabric that she went around and collected signatures from people so that she could put them in an autograph quilt she was making for herself as a keepsake. So you need to get started on one, Sarah. Okay, well, that has actually gotten us out of time. So thank you for coming on today, Linda. I I really appreciate it. We kind of got a little slow start there uh, with the technical problems, but I think we we, uh, had a really interesting hour, and I appreciate you coming on. Oh, it was my pleasure. I was really happy to do it. And seriously, you will have to report back on what you find out about Doves in the Window, because I think that... As far as quilting mysteries, I think that's probably the the biggest one left in in Laura is what did she mean by uh, doves in the window? Okay, I'll work on it and report back to you. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, thank you for uh, to Linda and to everybody else who was uh, listening tonight and listens to the archive later. And remember, uh, I'm going to be doing a, a program on Dismet before the end of September. And then uh, our big interview program for next month is going to be Saturday, October 27th, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Central Time, 12 p.m. Mountain Time, and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. We're going to be talking to Susan Thurlow about Dr. George Tan. So I hope that you will all join us again then. And thank you for being part of Trendlebed Tales. Thank
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.